go and have a seat. Let's pray together. Uh, God, I can only imagine what it is like for you to hear your, your people cry out in worship and in adoration. Uh, we are here this morning because you deserve to be praised. Uh, you deserve to be celebrated. Uh, we have life in your name, Jesus. We have hope in your name. There's no other place that we can go and scramble toward uh, that we would find life. Uh, Jesus, we praise you because you're alive. And because you're alive, we have the promise of life as well for this world and for the, the life to come. And we thank you as well that your, your life, your resurrection life, uh, commends us to believe that there will never be a moment where you will fail to pray on our behalf. Uh, your word says that you always live to make intercession for us. So there's never going to be a moment where you won't plead your perfect work on our behalf so that we can be accepted and part of the family of God. So would you quicken our hearts this morning to see you high lifted up? Uh, would you break apart any confusion that exists in our hearts that we'd see the gospel clearly uh, in, the, in the glory of God in the face of Christ? I pray for your people in this room that they would be stirred to greater affection for you. And if there's anyone with us this morning that's never surrendered to Jesus, has never become a Christian, then God, would you make today that day? Would you move in such a way through your spirit to, to rattle hard hearts, to break off the ice of apathetic hearts, and that we would see a vision of Jesus from the scriptures as we look at your word this morning. We love you. We thank you for the chance to be together. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, good morning, y'all. Come on. Good morning. Let's go. Good morning. Good to see you. I was joking with the first service. Even wardrobes come alive on Easter, right? Anybody relate? Some people looking good out there. Uh, so good to be with you. It's such a special morning uh, to be able to celebrate the fact that Jesus is alive. And because he's alive, he's alive in us as his people. And that's why we sing. That's why we celebrate. We have reason to sing. And there will be a day where all the shadow and darkness of this world will be no more. And we get to be with him in full glory and pleasure. And we're going to be in the book of Acts this morning. We're going to continue our journey through the book of Acts, uh, even through Easter Sunday, through Resurrection Sunday. Uh, let me ask you a question. How many of you have seen the, the miniseries The Chosen, or at least a part of it? Some of you? Okay, if you haven't seen it, I would encourage you to watch it. It's just a really remarkable depiction of uh, the gospel of Jesus through the lens of the various people that he comes into contact with. And the very first video in the series uh, is focused on Mary Magdalene. If you haven't been in church, you're not familiar who Mary Magdalene is. And the gospel is Mary Magdalene uh, is a prostitute. She's demon-possessed uh, with multiple demons. And she has an encounter with Jesus. And there was a quote that she said after her encounter with Jesus, and I want to just read it to you as we launch into this section today as we'll look at the, the life of Saul. But Mary Magdalene in the, in the video says this. She says, I was, I was one way. I used to be one way. But now I'm completely different. And the thing that happened in between was him. And if you're a Christian this morning, you have the exact same testimony. In the sense that you used to be one way. Like you used to live your life this particular way. And now you live your life this particular way. Maybe not in perfection. But in between, the difference, the thing that swung you from one life to the next was Jesus Christ. And so my simple thesis this morning, the main point of this message is this, and just, you'll hear me repeat it all morning, is that the, the risen Jesus can change anyone. The risen Jesus can change anyone. 
And if ever there was an example of this truth, it's Saul of Tarsus, who became known as the Apostle Paul after his encounter with Jesus. And so we're going to read from the book of Acts. And one commentator talked of it this way. As you, as you journey through the book of Acts, and as we move to study Saul of Tarsus today, who will become Paul, and really the, the balance of Acts is focused on his ministry largely. One commentator put it this way. He said, it's only a supernatural change. And I would add this. It's only a supernatural God that can take the, the terrorist in chapter 8 and make him the evangelist of chapter 9. But that's the God that we serve. That the risen Jesus can change anyone. And he does still change people, miraculously even today. So praise be to God for that. The risen Jesus can change anyone. Let's read. We're going to go to chapter 8 first. We're going to do something a little bit different today. Uh, if you're not normally here with us, we normally preach verse by verse through books of the Bible. We're in Acts right now. We're going to read three verses from the beginning of chapter 8. And we're actually going to leapfrog over largely what is Philip's ministry to go to Saul's conversion story in chapter 9. So where we are, just real briefly, brief sketch, where we were last week is, is we had the first martyr of the early church. Stephen was stoned to death because of his faithful profession of Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah. And so he was killed because of his faithfulness to that message. And so now what we're going to see is chapter 8 kind of represents this pretty significant switch in the book. Because persecution comes on the church and as a result, the people of God are scattered. And they're ultimately scattered to do the very thing that God had called them to do, to be his witnesses here, there, and everywhere. And so the beginning of chapter 8, here's what we hear. It says, and Saul approved of his, of Stephen's execution. Saul was there. All the coats of those who were stoning Stephen were thrown at Saul's feet, and he approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So we'll pause there for a second. What I want to do is I want to build for you the terrorist resume of Saul of Tarsus, just for a few minutes. We're going to kind of sit underneath the the magnitude of how destitute Saul of Tarsus was, how dark his life was, and how determined he was to destroy the church. So we see this word ravaging the church, which depicts this purposeful pursuit of the church's devastation and ruin. That he was quite literally hell-bent on destroying the thing that God had started. Saul was passionately devoted to breaking apart the church, not only did he stand by and approve of Stephen's murder, but if you can imagine it, it's what the text tells us, he went from house to house, forcefully dragging people out of their homes who belonged to Jesus, that they might be imprisoned or even killed. With his own hands, he forcefully pulled people out of their homes who believed in Jesus. He terrorized God's people from house to house. And Saul would later tell the church in Galatians, he wrote letters to different churches in the region he spoke of his past to the church in Galatia and said this, says, my former life in Judaism, I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. So this wasn't just some general distaste for Jesus or for his people. This is a passionate, zealous opposition to God and his people. 
So in 1 Timothy, again, Paul, as he often does, kind of hearkens back to his terrorist resume before Jesus. And he says this. He says, I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent. And later in Acts and a couple of different places, we're going to see Paul actually give a defense of his own life before different Roman authorities primarily. And so he gives his own defense. And part of what he does is he, is he tells a story of what he once was like and what he once did. And this is some of what he says in Acts 22, verse 19. He says, in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. In Acts 26, verses 9 through 11, he says, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. So Saul's appetite to destroy the church was so great, like it ran so hot that it couldn't be satisfied just in Jerusalem. So he had to go to other cities to chase down Christians, to try to bind them, take them to prison, or even kill them. And that's where we find ourselves at the beginning of Acts chapter 9. He's on his way to Damascus, one of those cities where he's now been given orders and papers to bind those who are in Damascus who believe in Jesus. And so we'll go there together. Go to chapter 9. We're going to hop over largely what is Philip's ministry. We'll go back there next week. But it says this, beginning of chapter 9. It says, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So long before Jesus' followers were called Christians, they were called those who followed the way, which is appropriate, right? Because in John 14, 6, Jesus said what? I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. So those who follow him are now called the people of the way, and Saul was devoted to their destruction. He wanted anyone belonging to the way to be bound. And up until this moment, like it's important to realize that, that Saul believed that Jesus of Nazareth was a fraud. He did not believe that he was the Messiah. And so notably, the empty tomb that would have been very conspicuously absent in Jerusalem, there had to be some explanation for why it was empty. So undoubtedly, he also thought the, the disciples had something to do with why Jesus' body was gone. That largely was a common theory that the disciples stole the body. But the tomb was empty because Jesus was alive. And everything was about to change for Saul. He went into Damascus or to Damascus for one reason, but there was a divine interruption in his plans. And that's what we see next. Let's look at verse 3. Everything was about to change because the risen Jesus can change anyone. In verse 3, it says, Now as he, as Saul went on his way, he approached Damascus. And suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? Or sir, who are you, sir? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. 
So it's interesting to note that Saul was walking on his way, on his way to, to bind and to persecute people of the way, right? A little bit ironic language. He's walking on his way to try to destroy the way. But God had other plans. Saul's path was a path of further destruction, a road of resistance to the work of God. But all at once, despite Paul's resistance, and notably apart from Paul's permission, God breaks into the moment. And he takes his vision. He shines up in glorious splendor and brilliant light. He crumbles to the ground, helpless. And he calls out, right? In response to Jesus' words, why are you persecuting me? He says, who are you? And he says, I'm Jesus, the one you're persecuting. What, what thoughts would have entered his mind? This one who seemingly all his energy was devoted to destroying Jesus of Nazareth and his reputation and his people. Now Jesus intervenes in a moment in time to quite literally freeze him in his tracks. And make no mistake about it, Paul or Saul saw this as an appearance of the risen Jesus. He goes on to refer, it, refer to it that way in 1 Corinthians 15. He talks about how Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And then what went on to happen is he rose from the grave and he appeared to witnesses, to the apostles, and to 500 witnesses at one time. And then at last, to one untimely born, he appeared to me, to, to Saul of Tarsus. And a piercing light stops him in his tracks, right? But there's one other thing that's, that was said to Saul that he actually talks about later on in the book of Acts. We don't see it in this account in chapter 9. I want to read it for you from Acts chapter 26 because it's helpful. So Jesus in Acts chapter, chapter 9 says, I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. But in Acts 26, Saul talks about this moment. He says one other statement that I think is important. He says it this way. He says, when we had all fallen to the ground, he's giving his account to King Agrippa, one of Rome's Caesars. He says, when we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? We have that in chapter nine, but we don't have this. He says, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. That's kind of a strange statement. We don't go around using the word goad or kicking the goads, but it's important. Here's why. So here's what a goad is. A goad is like a, an iron prod, a stick that you'd use to prod like a, a large animal, like an oxen, to make them move the way you want them to move, to do the things you want them to do. So essentially what's being said here is that Saul is resisting. He's kicking against the nudges and pricks of the heart, the stings from God of his spirit in his life. And I wonder if you can relate. If I could take a moment just to kind of highlight a piece of my own story and testimony. It might surprise you, but I haven't always been a pastor. I know, surprising. I haven't always been a Christian. I came to faith when I was 21, when I was in college. I'd never, to my recollection, never been to church before that. I didn't grow up in a Christian home. And for 21 years of my life, I just passionately pursued the things of the world. I tried to squeeze out of this world everything that I thought was going to give me life. And so I found myself in the just pit of emptiness and despair, having found nothing but emptiness in that pursuit in my life as a college student getting ready to graduate. And I met my, my now wife and started going to church with her and her family. 
And several weeks in a row, so I'm feeling the, the magnitude of my own brokenness and sin. I'm emotionally in a place of like, if, if I'm on a, a, a line chart in my life, I'm at the trough. And, and I started going to church. And it was a big church, probably 800 to 1,000 people. And the gospel is faithfully preached every week. And I remember feeling this way. Maybe you can relate to this. Like every single Sunday, like the pastor would preach a sermon. It's like, how does this guy know me so well? It's like every single message was like dealing with some issue in my own life. And by and by over the course of these weeks, I'm feeling like I need to give my life to Jesus. Like I, I'm feeling the gravity of my own sin. I know I need a solution. I know it's not found in me. I'm hearing that it's found in Jesus. I remember being confronted with questions about like if, if I meet God face to face and he asks why I deserve to get to heaven, I have no idea what I'm gonna tell him. No idea. And it rattled me. So week after week, the same rhythm happens in the service. Gospel's preached. I'm feeling convicted. I need to go up. I need to give my life to Jesus. And there's this invitation at the end of every service. You've probably been in a church like this. It's a traditional invitation. It's not a bad thing. It can be a really effective thing at times. And they're like, hey, if after the message you want to give your life to Jesus, just come down up front and this old guy up here will pray with you. And I was like, I'm not going up there. I'm not doing that. I was way too prideful. I'm not. I don't know this guy, and there's way too many people in this room. I'm not going up front. This is like six weeks in a row, the same exact process. Message is preached. How's this guy know me so well? Feeling convicted. I need to give my life to Jesus. And I see this old guy, and I'm like, I'm not going up there. Like, I'm not going to do this. I was so prideful. I knew the way to my own sin. I just wouldn't, I wouldn't follow the, the nudging of God's spirit to go. But here's what happened in my case. So at the end of this six-week progression, same process, messages preached, I'm feeling convicted, I need to give my life to Jesus, I know I do. I understand the gospel at this point, I understand my brokenness, my need for a savior. And invitation is given, I'm like, oh, I need to go, and I'm like, oh, I can't do it. I stayed in my seat. But here's what happened on this Sunday. So everybody gets up to leave, we're, we're dismissed. I'm on the outside of Haley, my wife, and her brother, and her mom and dad, and I stand up and my vision is completely gone. I can't see anything. It's completely coherent. My eyes were open, but I couldn't see anything. It was like I was looking through tears. Never happened in my life, never happened since. And so that was the, that was the day I gave my life to Jesus. Like I went to my off-campus housing at school, looked at my popcorn ceiling like I was staring into the Milky Way. I was like, Jesus, take my life. Just come into my life, change me, make me new. I don't, I don't know exactly what that means, but I know I need you. And I surrendered to Jesus. Here's why I tell this story. Is some of you in this room, a room this size, undoubtedly, there might be some of you in this room that, that you're in the midst of that process. Like God is graciously, through his people, maybe through a parent, through a friend, a coworker, maybe through me even this morning, is, is prodding you through his spirit to give your life to Jesus. There's no other way that you can be saved. There's no other path for salvation or life. Don't kick against the goads of the Spirit of God. This gentle, gracious, what can become even forceful nudgings. Because God could have gotten my attention a whole lot of different ways. But he was gracious. I believe he touched my body physically, took my sight so that I could have sight indeed to see Jesus for who he truly is. And maybe you're here this morning, you know that you're resisting 
those same gentle, gracious nudgings from God. Don't do it. Give your life to him. One of the, the miracles and difficulties of Christianity is that we feel exposed, be, rightly exposed because of our sin. We're confronted with the fact that we have broken God's law. We have not loved God the way we should. We've not loved people the way that we should. And we feel exposed. We don't like to feel exposed. But as a believer, here's like the miracle of, of new life in Jesus. is The place of exposure is the path to life. If you find yourself being exposed by Jesus, run toward it because there you'll find him. And if you hide, if you scramble into creation like Adam and Eve to cover up your guilt, you'll only find yourself burying yourself in more and more guilt and shame in your life. Run to Christ. Believe in him today even. In verse six, you see this at the end of five Verse five, God says, I'm, Jesus says, I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. Verse six, so he says, but rise and enter the city. And you'll be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, no surprise, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. And Saul rose from the ground. And although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days, he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. So just think about this for a moment. Saul came to Damascus to bind Christians with his own hands. But now he's so helpless, he has to be led by the hand into Damascus. Like he was so independent, he went to get orders of what he already wanted to do from the high priest, got letters and the freedom to go to Damascus to bind Christians, this independent, insolent opponent to God. But now he gets new orders. In a moment in time, his life is immediately changed and he gets orders from heaven. He's broken, he's blinded, he's helpless. And God, what does God tell him? Much like he tells every broken person at the feet of Jesus, rise. Rise and go into this city. Go. He positions those who have fallen to a place of usability, which we'll get to here in just a moment. But a man defined by his forcefulness his strength and independence is now blind, weak, and completely dependent as he enters into Damascus. And time after time, when Jesus was alive in his ministry, he always correlated blindness. He used it as a spiritual illustration in several places. And here's one in John chapter 9, notably speaking to those who are religious, passionately religious, devoted to outward right living, as it were. Jesus said this to them. He said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. So he's saying if, if you claim that you're okay, if you claim that you see, it's, you're demonstrating the fact that you're actually the one who's blind. But the moment that you realize you're blind, that's the moment that you see. And that was Saul's experience. Like the moment his physical sight was taken his spiritual sight allowed him to see Jesus for the very first time in a way that none of his religious pursuits could attain. He had never seen Jesus before this moment. His physical blindness led to his spiritual sight, and he was never the same because the risen Jesus could change anyone. 
In verse 10, look there with me. It says, now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. This wonderful posture of receiving instruction from God, much like Isaiah. He said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise. There's that word again. Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here in Damascus, he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he regained his sight. There's something I want us to draw out from Ananias in this story. Because Ananias, here's the command of God. Hey, Ananias, there's this guy named Saul, and I want you to go to him. Ananias Riley's like, I know that guy. I don't want to go to that guy. He's bad to your people. He's about to be bad to me. I don't want to go there. Notably, understandably resistant. And what's God's response? Go. Trust me. I can change anyone. And in fact, I have. I've changed Saul. He's my chosen instrument to take my name. He's, he's spoke against my now, name. Now he's going to be my chosen instrument to take my name to the world. So he says, rise and go. There's a supernatural change, empowerment, and Ananias in this story too, because what does he do? He, he goes. And even the fact that he can address him as brother is a supernatural empowerment from God. Just to have the faith to walk into this house, assumably with still a little trepidation, he dips down to where Saul was, sitting, praying, whatever he was doing, and he, the first words that he says are, brother. Because the risen Jesus can change anyone. He can, he can take a guy who wants to tear apart the church and make him your brother in an instant while he's on his way to persecute you. He can change you just like that and make you a brother to the same guy that you were scared of just moments before. Why? Because Jesus can change anyone. The risen Jesus can change anyone. Always can, and he always will. The second half of verse 18, it says, Then Saul arose. He rose and was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened. For some days, he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard Saul were amazed and said, Is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? Has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. 
Of course they were confused. Because immediately he preached Jesus as the Christ. He stood up, he rose, he was baptized. Then he began to preach that Jesus was the son of God. These people are like, wait a second, wasn't this the same guy? He just came here to try to undo all this and now he's preaching the same name? Utterly confusing, but just miraculous and beautiful. Why? Because the risen Jesus can change anyone. He still does. He still can. He can change you. From one degree of God's likeness to the next. Because the risen Jesus sets the fallen on their feet. And this is a wonderful picture in Saul's conversion. Because he's, confr- like he's confronted with the brilliance and the brightness of Jesus. He falls to the ground. His vision is taken from him. All his confidence disintegrates. And he literally falls on the ground. And what does God do with the fallen? He raises them to their feet and he makes them usable in his hands. Can I get an amen to that? Because that's every single one of us. He makes us fall at his feet and we surrender by faith. And what does he do? He says, rise, go. You're mine now. You're my chosen instrument to make my name known in this world. That is you if you're a Christian. It's not just Saul. I know this changed my own life. I surveyed back from that moment where I gave my life to Jesus that day. I didn't know I was going to be a pastor. If you'd have told me 20 years ago I was going to be up here preaching on Easter Sunday, I'd be like, you're crazy. I'm supposed to be a financial planner. <laughs> That's what God does, though. My life is his. It's not my own. And if you belong to him, the same is true of you. Your life is no longer your own. You've been bought with a price. And he says, Rise. He raises the fallen to their feet. He sets them on a course to make himself known for as many days as he gives us. Amen? That's us, every single one of us, if we're in Christ. He raises the fallen to their feet. Instead of inflicting suffering, Saul was going to suffer as God's chosen instrument to make his name known to the world. Saul will no longer persecute the name of Jesus. He will proclaim it. Immediately, in fact, instead of binding the hands of other Christians, he's going to be bound to them. Isn't that interesting? He met with the brothers and sisters in Damascus in this season after he came to faith, notably, right? Because there's no such thing as a lone rager Christian in the Bible that we all need other believers to be around us. It was no different for Saul. As soon as he came to faith, he was baptized to proclaim his newfound faith. And, and he went to be with God's people. And he began to preach. And that's the, that's the pattern should be of every Christian ever. So we encounter Jesus. We fall to our face in worship. We trust in him by faith. He sets us on our feet, sends us on our way. We're baptized to proclaim that we're new in him. And he gives us a job to do until he returns. Why? Because Jesus... The risen Jesus changes anyone. The risen Jesus can change anyone. And maybe you sit here this morning and part of you thinks to yourself that that God can never love you. Maybe there's some story that only you know, some shade of your struggle and sin and failure that only you're aware of. But God knows And because he knows, and because you know that, you you can't imagine that God would ever love you or have a place 
for you and his plan, his purposes. Well, if Saul was here this morning, I think at least some of what he would say to you is this, and I know this because he said it in 1 Timothy chapter 1, talking about the grace of God that had been given to him. He said this, hear me on this. If this is you, if you feel just the weight of disqualification in your own heart, so much so that you can't imagine that God would love you and be able to restore you, this is what Saul says, considering his past. He says, Jesus Christ came into this world to save sinners. And he said, I'm the foremost. But God demonstrated his patience and mercy because he showed me grace as the foremost of sinners. And you might not consider yourself the foremost of sinners, but you might be tempted to think that there's no way that you could be involved in the plan of God, the purposes of God, to be redeemed for God. But please hear something in this story that tells you something different, that the risen Jesus can change anyone. And if you're a child of God this morning, if you're a Christian, you're a person of the way, there might be ways in which in your life, I anticipate there are, where you know that you've been resisting against the, the subtle, gracious, but clear nudges of God to walk in obedience and faith and righteousness in your life. Don't resist anymore. Fall to your knees in your brokenness and allow God to be the one who picks up the pieces of that brokenness and fashions you into something usable in his hands. As I close off, I, I want to share just really clearly in this moment what the gospel is. You may have heard that term your whole life, and I want to make sure that everybody leaves this room understanding what it is. The gospel is, means good news. And the story in the Bible is this, is that God created us to worship him and to know him. But because of our sin, every single one of us have broken God's law. None of us have loved God the way that we should or loved others the way that we should. That's called sin. And what the Bible says is because of our sin, our relationship with God has been fractured. There's been irreparable damage caused to our communion with God. It's broken. And there's nothing that can cause that to be repaired except for one thing, and that's the Lord Jesus. And so when you come to him, Jesus quite literally becomes the bridge to reconcile you back to God. And so we stare at the cross. What we're staring at, what we're thinking about, what the Bible teaches is that Jesus, when he came, he lived the perfect life that you and I could never live. He completely loved God. He completely loved others. He completely, actively, consistently fulfilled the law. And as a result, he was able to go to the cross as a perfect sacrifice, a blameless, spotless lamb, the lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. And what happened to him on that cross is Jesus became everything that I am. So that when I look at him by faith, I get to become everything that he is. He becomes all of my sin. I become all of his righteousness in this profound exchange of faith. And it's only by faith, by grace, through Christ. And so what happens when we, we talk about the resurrection is we realize that Jesus, when he died, he didn't, he didn't die because he sinned. Death is the culmination of sin. But when Jesus died, he didn't die because he sinned. He died because he was the sin bearer. He died in our place. And when he rose from the grave, 
It declared that he was victorious, that he was who he says he was, that he is God in the flesh. And he rose victorious. The death couldn't hold him. The grave couldn't handle him. So now for his people, united with him, we get the, the privilege of now saying the same, that because Jesus is alive, I'm alive too now, and I will one day be ultimately and finally alive, that I will rise just like he did to find newness of life ultimately and finally, but you can have it now. It starts now. Newness of life in Jesus starts today if you're in him. The same spirit who raised Jesus from the dead dwells within his people to give life to their mortal bodies, rolling aside the stones that would keep us captive in the grave. He thrust them aside in his name. And through his divine power, he's given us everything we need for life and godliness. That is the hope of every Christian. The risen Jesus can change anyone. And if you're in him, he has changed you. So may Saul's story remind us of how the risen Jesus can change anyone. And maybe there's people in your life where you're tempted to think that I just I can't ever see how Jesus could ever change, that grace could actually reach this person in my life. Just let this story remind you of the fact the risen Jesus can change anyone. Like Ananias, that we would, even though hesitant, that we would run fueled by faith in the, the miraculous power of God to see people come to saving faith, to be rescued from darkness and brought into his marvelous light. Amen? The risen Jesus can change anyone. And I pray that we believe that today. Let's pray together. I'll invite the worship team back up. We'll sing to celebrate that reality together as we close off. Uh, God, we, uh, I believe all of us probably could say that we believe, but we need you to help our unbelief. We, we're, we're here, and I pray that every single heart would be stirred, if not just to worship you because of the resurrection, to be confronted with the resurrection, because the empty tomb demands a response from every single human being. If Jesus is alive, that it changes everything. If Jesus is alive, then that means he is God, that he is the king, and kings have subjects. And so I pray that we be subject to him joyfully, willingly, knowing that life is found in his name. There's no other name, no other place we can go to find life. And just as the disciples said that, Jesus, you are the only one who has the words of eternal life. Would you fill us with faith to be those who, having surrender to Christ and being confronted with our sin, now stand up to go and to preach him immediately, even in the face of resistance. And I pray there be no one in this room that somehow would be deceived into thinking that they're too far removed from your grace. God, we thank you that the risen Jesus can change anyone. And if we are in you today, he has changed us. So may these songs just be a response to celebration, adoration, gratitude, thanksgiving, because you deserve our praise. You deserve our worship. Jesus, we thank you that you're alive. And where we're tempted to think that our labor is in vain in this life as your people, I pray that we would be reminded of what Paul said, that we'd be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that our toil is never in vain in the Lord. And that's true because Jesus is alive. So we bless you. We magnify your name together. And we sing these songs in response to praise. In Jesus' name. Let's go ahead and stand together and we'll sing to close off our time.